DevCom Podcast presents the Fireside Cast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to this episode of our DevCom Podcast series, bringing you the DevCom experience year-round. Today, we're going to take a look behind the scenes of games in the 80s and 90s in both Romania and the Czech Republic. And for that, we have our two expert guests. First one is Andrada Fiskutea, science and technology journalist uh, from Romania. And we have Jaroslav Schwelch from uh, the Czech Republic. Uh, he's a digital games and new media scholar. Welcome to you both. And it's absolutely great to have you here. Hey, thanks for inviting us. <laughs> thanks, thanks for <laughs> yeah, being thanks, here. Th uh, thanks so much. So uh, super exciting topic because, uh, you know, in game development, we usually don't look back so far, especially not in, in countries that, you know, most Westerners don't even have on the radar that much for, for their gaming culture. So I'm really glad we can change this tonight with this, uh, with this episode. So um, I'm curious, uh, of course, uh, you know, for, for, to learn more about all that, but uh, let's start with an introduction. So Andrada, why don't you tell a bit about yourself and what your, uh, what your background is, what you've been working on, and then handing it over to uh, Yaro afterwards so we can uh, give our listeners a little bit of an insight into to uh, who we are talking with today. Okay, so um, I started working in radio in 1998, which was less than a decade after the fall of communism in Romania. It was just a small uh, radio station in Transylvania. And um, being a journalist back then was the coolest possible profession because um, after decades of communism, we were finally able to speak freely. And this was really important for us back then. So I kind of kept doing journalism and I still work for a radio station in Bucharest. And um, in addition to that, I also try to write stories on science and technology for international publications, such as um, Ars Technica, Wired, Nature, um, and more. And um, I often write about the history of technology in the region because um, I also collect retro computers. Um, it's that thing that when you're a child and you don't have a computer, then when you grow up, you tend to overbuy that product. <laughs> and this is what I do. I have more than a dozen uh, computers, mainly manufactured in Romania, some of them uh, legally, um, other computers less legally. So from, from the black market back then, um, and it's a nice mix. And I love talking to the people who um, built them. And I really like to, to look at the intersection of science, technology, um, history, and society. Great. I mean, we're definitely going to talk more about the legal and illegal part of what you collect and uh, and dive deeper into that. But before we get into that, uh, Yaroslav, maybe you want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself as well. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I'm an academic. I work as an assistant professor at, at Charles University. And um, my, my pathway into this topic, I think, started already in the 80s when I was, um, when my dad worked as a programmer at a factory. Um, and so they had access to computers. When back then, you know, home computers were I mean, not many people had them. So it was, it was, um, it, it, was it was one of the ways of getting uh, to computers was, you know, having somebody in the family who works with computers. So I would go to his office and I would play games there on, they had East German computers back then. So I played, uh, I played games there and then I got my own computer in the, in the early nineties. And, um, you know, I studied media studies and I studied, um, linguistics and, and journalism. Um, and at some point I, I was, um, I, I was making a decision about like either doing my PhD or doing something else. And I wanted to do a, a PhD, but only if it's connected to something that I'm kind of, I relate to that's, you know, important to me and interesting to me. Um, and I uh, picked um, th this topic, you know, writing about uh, the history of computer games and gaming, you know, discourse and gaming magazines in Czechoslovakia and, and the Czech Republic in the 1980s and, and the 90s. And I started kind of writing about the 90s uh, because that was the, the period when I was actually, you know, most active. Right. Uh, but then but then I found out that I, you cannot really write about the 90s if you don't know that much about the 80s. So I kind of went back and, and wrote, um, you know, the dissertation about what was happening in the 80s behind the Iron Curtain in Czechoslovakia, how people were making games and playing games. And then 
um, eventually this turned in, into a book uh, called Gaming the Iron Curtain, which came out you know, t- two years ago it's on MIT Press. Cool. I mean, we have two experts here about uh, you know this this time period, uh, and like I said, we're going to dive deeper into many of those areas. But w- w- to to get started, why don't you give us a little bit of a feel for how it was in the eighties um, in, in in both your countries? So uh, I would like to understand uh, what was the situation for somebody who was interested in that. How how illegal did that have to be? You know, referring to what you were saying, Andrada, for example, in if you were to work on computers, uh, I, I was in the luxurious position to to live in the West where Unfortunately, we weren't. Uh, we're fortunately, I should say, we weren't affected um, uh, too much by that, so we had more access. But I was, I was wondering, like, how did it feel for free people, and how did they usually get in touch with um, a technology and, and games ultimately? Yeah, so we always looked up to the Czechoslovaks, who were somehow, <laughs> <laughs> who were somehow better than we were. So um, I would say that the 1980s were the most harsh years of, of, of communism and it was cold and dark and we only had two hours of tv program um, over the course of a day and those two hours were about uh dictator nikolai ceausescu going to factories and meeting with people and it was mostly propaganda uh we could only watch um uh, we could mostly watch romanian movies or movies made in um the countries that we were um we had friendly relationships with. Um, people would often wake up at five uh, in the morning in order to stand in line to get uh, bread or milk. So um, there were food rations uh, back then in, in Romania. So you would get one liter of vegetable oil per month, uh, one kilo of sugar or flour. And but a, a lot of freedoms were restricted and um, there were very few things a person could do. So this is why computers were seen as godlike uh, products. Was it was that um, the same in in, the, in Czechoslovakia back then, roughly? I mean, Andrade yeah, just said you were uh, the ones they were looking up to. So what was it a little different for you? Yeah, I guess uh, economically, I think Czechoslovakia was better off uh, at that time. It was a uh, it was an industrialized country. And I think the living standards were kind of acceptable and they weren't great, but they were acceptable. Mm. So I think we were better off than, than Romania in that regard, but it is also often described as gray. Uh, you know, not that many opportunities, not that much variety. Like when you went to into a store, and wanted to buy something, there was just not much to choose from. And, you know, computers weren't available uh, on the market. You couldn't go into a store and, uh, you know, and, 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 and buy a computer. But it was, you know, the shortages were omnipresent, you know, like uh, Andrada said that you had to wait in line for basic products, you know, in Czechoslovakia, probably not for food, but, uh, you know, toilet paper. That was like a, f- a famous thing that sometimes, you know. Well, like it's, it's country... been a famous thing this year as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, so now we're there again. We're standing in lines for toilet paper, which was a thing that you know happened in the 80s because the, uh, the economy was, it was centrally centrally controlled and sometimes you know it was just off you know like there was not enough produced for the demand that was there and you know it it's concerned toilet paper but also computers because there was a huge demand for computers people believed that computers would be the future uh but uh, there just weren't any on the market uh, in you know in in the early 80s in the mid 80s so we're um, just referring to that, um, Yaroslav, whether computers being manufactured in Czechoslovakia or everything that was on the market, even though it was a limited quantity, was that coming from, from other countries? Yeah, so th- there were actually uh, Czechoslovak computers being manufactured. Um, and obviously, bef- you know, in the 60s and 70s, there, there were mainframe computers, like huge yeah. computers for factories. And they were, some of them were uh, produced in Czechoslovakia as far as home computers. Um not that much. There were some models being manufactured in the country, but uh, they were, in terms of performance, they were, you know, much, much, you know, uh, behind the West. So, you mm-hmm. know, we had a computer called PME85 in 1985, which was basically like performance-wise was like the Apple II from, yeah. you know, 1977. Um, so, and, and, and on top of that, um, you couldn't buy them in, in a store. So they were produced, but they were there were so few of them produced that they were sold directly 
to schools and other institutions that wanted them. So, but they never were available on the open market. So if somebody wanted a home computer for themselves, they would have to, most of the time, they would have to go to the West or have somebody else go to a Western country and, and import it into Czechoslovakia or smuggle it. I just want to say, when you say import, is that import in in, in smuggling or is that uh, like legally importing it? Uh, could be both. Um, people were some people were legally importing them. You could do that. It was not forbidden. You could mm -hmm. bring a computer from the West, given that you could actually travel to the West, which not everyone could. Like you had to have special permits, but then you could actually bring it into the country. But you had to pay customs fees, which were very high. So many mm -hmm. people chose to smuggle them instead instead of legally important. So besides availability in the country, of course, like also costs for, for getting yeah. computers were Absolutely. Um, yeah. pretty expensive. How was that uh, in Romania? Was it similar situation or even worse? Yeah, it was just uh, a little bit worse than what Yaro said. Um, because if if you look at, at at geography, Czechoslovakia was closer to the West mm. than than we were. So um, I have a friend whose father worked for for a uh, mathematical institute here in, in in Bucharest, and who was able to go abroad. And he hid his computer inside a diplomatic suitcase to avoid uh, border control. He bought a Spectrum. Um, what was interesting about Romania was that although people had very few resources, uh, they wanted to have computer and they saw no way of, of getting this computer from the legal market or from abroad because very few people had connections to um, people living abroad. So what they did was to um, build them themselves with smuggled components and with whatever was available on the market. And one thing that happened here was that um, the communists didn't want people to build radios. So the price of uh, electronic components on the legitimate market was very, very high. Um, but there were people who would um, steal these components from factories, like factory workers who would sell them on the, the black market in order to make some money in addition to the salary. And um, this is how people ended up buying components in order to build their, their computers. And there were also motherboards that were uh, signed as faulty in a factory to be able to uh, get them and uh, bring them to the black market. And this was something that was, was very common. In fact, uh, there was this computer that was built by students in Polytechnica University of Bucharest, the Romanian uh, MIT. And uh, this computer, um, the, the students built more computers than the official factory that was supposed to manufacture them. So imagine uh, how many components were stolen from, from that factory and many others. Yeah, I saw that in the in your article that you published a while ago on, on Ars Technica, and, and I found this very amazing that you know the students have actually uh, developed more than the the, the company. The thing doing. is that you shouldn't look at um, stealing components from from a factory with um, today's standards because yeah. people had no respect for the for the system back then, and they knew that the system wouldn't provide them with with anything they wanted, so they basically felt like Robin Hoods. And just wanted to, to to change things a little bit to their advantage. It it, it was an a, um, an asymmetric fight with the regime. How dangerous was that back then? I mean, did they get in serious trouble when they were discovered? I'm pretty sure that sometimes you know people were noticing what was going on. And and let me quote Indiana Jones here. Uh, it, it was a line that Yarrow included in in the game, and he said that. Uh, bribery is the enemy of socialism but it works <laughs> so uh, as long as you would bribe the right people uh, and there were these networks in which everyone needed everyone else uh, I guess you could bribe a police officer with something knowing that um, he could also help you and it was it was a currency bribe was currency basically so, but so maybe Yarrow <laughs> wouldn't agree with me on this because it might be highly controversial. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, he says no. Good. So um, he he uh, neither confers nor denies. <laughs> <laughs> so so for the listeners, I actually, even though it's audio only for you, I I see uh, the two, and uh, you know when we do these recordings, and he was shaking his head, so I know that he he kind of agreed. But the um the question I would have is then is you know people got the parts they um you know got uh, faulty parts from the even if they might not have been mm -hmm. faulty you know from the factories and and they started putting this stuff together. How did they um get the the knowledge? to actually build those computers um, is that something that was just self-taught so did they reverse engineer everything took a look at it and uh, or whether whether it's hobbyists or did they form like clubs or something with experts to help them build those things can you maybe talk a bit about how that worked and how people got the knowledge to build computers and, and actually work with computers if it was not a public good that everybody had access to that's really interesting. Um, in the beginning, there were people who worked in uh, computer factories that started to build these computers at home. And little by little, they taught other people to do it. And um, what's interesting for that time was that software and hardware were seen as the same uh, sides of the as the two sides of the same coin. And if you were uh, someone interested in technology, you had to know both. So you had to know how to use the soldering iron and do create something with your own hands. So that, that, that was seen as something cool. So yeah, um, knowledge was some sort of currency back then. And people would often share with um, each other and try to find different solutions for the problems that they had. Uh, it was um, the community was really strong and diverse, and they were uh, trying to learn from each other as much as I could. Plus, the technology was um, not as complex as it as it is right now. So, if you would just pay a lot of attention and and look at the components, it wasn't rocket science to to be able to build one of these computers. Was that was that kind of similar in Czechoslovakia back then, or did you have different ecosystem around that? I think there were a lot of similarities, definitely. So bribery was definitely a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so so I totally agree. Um, um, yeah, I think it was a bit different because of the difference in availability of, of Western computers. Mm -hmm. So here in Czechoslovakia, people didn't really build that many. Uh, computers because they could get them from the West. Uh, but what they did do uh, was uh, building peripherals, so joysticks and mice and printers and plotters and all these things that are usually a little easier to build, like joysticks. They're a little easier to build than a computer, building a computer from scratch. So they were building a lot of a lot of these things. Um, yeah, I have a really nice collection of these homemade DIY joysticks, you know, with uh, <laughs> wooden knobs taken from like uh, basically from furniture. You know, it's it's really they're really cool cool pieces. And in terms of uh, knowledge, I think it was it was quite similar. Uh, some some of the knowledge actually came from uh, translated magazines of sometimes from Western magazines, but also from Soviet magazines. Because the Soviets had a very active DIY hobby electronics scene, so a lot of them, what of that was translated from Russian, also, and um, and computer clubs were absolutely instrumental to sharing of, of this kind of knowledge. Uh, so that's where you know people gathered, um, adults and, and and teenagers, and kind of worked on their projects together. And back then, it was a bit like. A bit like the open source movement, I would say, uh, you know, because there was no money to be made on these things. People just really kind of shared their knowledge with, with others and didn't withhold it, wanting to kind of make money on these things. So right. I think it was a very kind of open-minded and friendly atmosphere. Yeah, it sounds like they were all enthusiasts about, you know, technology and and, uh, and doing this. So th the way it sounds to me from listening to you both is that it was a little easier maybe to get access to those um, components in, in Czechoslovakia compared to, to Romania. Um, Andrada, did you also see, um, you know, this this uh, these computer clubs coming up there and people meeting or was that was that considered too illegal, you know, to be uh, allowed by the government back in the day? I'd say that... Um... The communists were really interested in people learning science and technology. And uh, there were these clubs that uh, Yaro mentioned also in Romania that were some sort of, that functioned um, such as just like Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts clubs mm -hmm. um, in, in the US. And they also uh, had the idea of preparing the, the, the next generation to be able to take 
take really good jobs in in the factory and um technical education was really emphasized in Romania because they needed people to reverse engineer western product so do not imagine that the computers that were built in Romania were original they were original when you look at the solutions that people found to copy western products and there are a lot of stories with spies going to companies such as Texas Instruments and stealing components and bringing them back to the country where a university professor would look at it and try to to build a similar product that would be uh, a lot cheaper so um it w- it was a very complex ecosystem that was supported by the state and um it functioned at a lot of levels starting with young uh, children to um university professors to spies and to um the whole idea of the five year plan that um communists country uh had speaking of communist countries um where was there any way of collaborating um between people working in the tech um ecosystem for example in Romania with other communist countries was there was there some kind of exchange at that time there was um i was able to find a file i haven't written a story on this yet but i was able to find a file about um a romanian engineer who went to north korea to teach them something about technology i still haven't accessed that that file uh which is uh part of the secret services um archive but they had some some sort of exchange um among the countries at a very high level however i don't think that um regular people like you and me would be able to to talk to foreigners although these foreigners would be in a, in a communist country in order to exchange uh, knowledge um as yaro said we also had a few magazines and a few romanian magazines that were copied after western magazines uh that were um available for people to learn from and it's also interesting that uh many people had their uh first interaction real interaction with foreign languages through uh these magazines because when you would open this magazine that would be in a totally unknown language you'll try to make an effort to really understand what's there because right. it was pure gold so whether it's um magazines usually coming from uh from the west or, or other other communist countries or yaro you mentioned before the um uh, the soviet union at some point you know what what were where was the both. Uh, the most impact coming from from the outside i would say i'd say both yeah. of the although when it came when it comes to gaming i i feel that there were two routes two main routes one through yugoslavia and another one through poland And Yaro, I know that you did more research on this than I, and maybe uh, you could confirm this or or not. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that this is based on uh, some testimonies from the early 90s with people uh, talking about how kind of pirated games uh got into the country. And it seems that they usually got in through the more liberal countries mm-hmm. of the Eastern Bloc, mm-hmm. which like for example, uh Poland or or Yugoslavia which were slightly more liberal and it was easier to kind of move things across the borders. So it seems that uh, a lot of the games kind of went came through Poland or through Yugoslavia into the Soviet bloc. And um also I think Poland was quite important also for for Czechoslovakia because they had better magazines. So a lot of uh, Czechoslovaks were reading Polish magazines and they actually kind of learned polish in order to be able to read those magazines i mean the languages are not that far apart but still you kind of you have to put in some effort to be able to yeah. read polish so we we talked a bit about the the hardware and how computers get into the country but now we we're starting to touch on the topic of games which is obviously you know very interesting um uh, for our listeners as well so how did how did that look like i mean you were already talking a bit about uh, you know pirated games from the west being imported into czechoslovakia being uh, coming to romania was there any kind of um game development happening uh once the hardware was there were there people you know developing games on their own within uh, your countries and what did that look like if that happened so if we start with romania and we should because the the history of gaming in romania is not that long um i'd say that the first thing was to um localize those games mm-hmm because there was a language issue not a lot of people uh, um were able to um 
learn English in school because um, it wasn't um, a language that was favored by the regime. So in order to uh, understand what the game is about, and many games were in text mode, you'd have to translate them into Romanian. And there are a, a few versions, for instance, of Chucky Egg. There's a Romanian version of Chucky Egg um, that was uh, developed by some uh, d- developers back then who were working for a for the industry. And um, in by localizing those games, they automatically uh, became accessible. And um, I'd say that people didn't work together. They, they were um, independently um, trying to, to build games. And as Yaro mentions in his book, at some point people realized that there weren't um, enough games on, on the market and creating games by yourself was even more fun than playing them. Was that was that similar in in, uh, in Czechoslovakia back then? Uh, to, yeah, to some extent, yeah. So there were initially some translations and also conversions for the domestic computers. So we had some of those domestic models, and and some programmers would just take a British game for the ZX Spectrum, for instance, and kind of make a conversion for another platform. So that was quite common. But around 1985. I think a lot of, kind of original games started to, uh, you know, be produced, and, and there was there was a lot of them. Um, I'm I'm really astounded by how active the scene was. Uh, the amateur homebrew scene, you know, there was no market, so nobody did for money. And uh, so far, it seems that like up to 400, definitely over 300 games uh, have been preserved from from the 1980s. Uh, so before wow. any kind of market even started, and and I, and there must have been games that haven't been preserved, right? Like that, that are lost or that will be, you know, eventually kind of discovered. So it, it was a very active, very active scene. And people were, of course, they were uh, copying Western templates. So they were making so variations on Western games. Uh, you know, there was this uh, huge hit, Manic Miner, you know, a 1983 British game. And there were lots of kind of conversions and variations on that, and kind of clones of that in Czechoslovakia in the in the mid eighties. Yeah, were those mainly um, you know individuals working on that, or did you at that time sometimes see that they came together in the computer clubs and and worked together on on some of those titles? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it depends. Uh, I think that well, most of the people who were making games at that time were also members of clubs. Uh, so they definitely were connected to clubs. Um, they might have worked on the games at home, but they also uh, got a lot of knowledge and a lot of know-how and you know programming tricks from other people they they knew from the from the club. So it was um, it was like a it was like a hybrid, right? So it's like they, they went to the club and then they did something at home and maybe they did something at the club. Sometimes they were collectives, like groups of three, you know, four or five people that were kind of helping each other out and. And, and, and making games so um yeah some of them were kind of lone wolf kind of you know uh, uh programmers somewhere you know in a, in a remote village somewhere those those were around too but the world was quite different back then so we didn't have instagram and facebook <laughs> and course, internet yeah. and yeah. um building games i think was the coolest activity one could possibly engage in and maybe this is why there are so many titles in, in Czechoslovakia. In Romania, I was able to find, I think, um, five or six dozen games that um, are preserved and there are available on uh, websites that promote Spectrum games. Mm-hmm. So how was the, the discourse in society about um, computer games? I mean, you were touching on this a little bit that you know, Andrade said it was one of the coolest things that you, you, you could see. Um, how did, you know, the, 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 the more, the broader society actually see video games back in that time? Was that something they were even aware of? I mean, uh, or, or was that uh, something that happened somewhere in the shadows and, you know, um, probably older people weren't really uh, talking about this much? I'm just curious, like how it was seen. Yeah, I can start. Um, well, uh, I think for a long time, uh, people didn't really notice because it was uh, mostly young people were playing uh, mm-hmm. computer games. So I think um, at least the authorities didn't really notice. So for a long time, I mean, computer games were 
probably the least regulated and censored medium in the country because the authorities just didn't consider it a medium. So people were just, you know, freely playing games like Raid Over Moscow, which were totally kind of anti-Soviet kind of Cold <laughs> War, uh, you know, U.S. propaganda games. <laughs> we can we can say, it. and people were just playing them, and there was no problem. There was no censorship for games. So 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 I think the authorities didn't really realize that games were a medium. As we kind of um, as the decade kind of progressed, I think towards the uh, the late eighties, um, I think especially parents were kind of uh, starting to get concerned about you know their kids spending too much time with computer games. So there definitely was some kind of critique of that. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I think that like generally, I think the the outlook was that this was just a way of kind of teaching kids how to program and use computers. So there were some concerns that people are maybe spending too much time, but I th- I don't think it was um, seen as something like threatening or dangerous. To me and to my friends. Uh, parents were really supportive because, uh, as Yaro mentioned before, uh, games were seen as something from the future and computers uh, also. So being able to understand how these uh, machines work was um, a ticket out of poverty or this is how how it was seen. So um, I'd say that a lot of parents encouraged their computers to, to learn how to code. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why Eastern Europe has um, a lot of women who are into science and technology, because um, they were also encouraged to to take uh, up this task and try to, to learn more and potentially have a job in this sector. And if you look at the map of women in tech in Europe, you'd see that uh, the countries that rank the highest are former communist countries. Yeah, I saw that when I was actually doing some research prior to the recording of this episode, and I find it very amazing that uh, that this happened. Uh, it's a, it's an interesting development that we can maybe learn from even today. I'm not saying you know going back to communism, but I'm just saying there must be something that we uh, that we can learn from that. Um, Andrada, when you talk about it was a ticket out of out of poverty for people um, in Romania, uh, what what do you mean by that? Did you after did people that were uh, really good with computers uh, on the hardware or software side get a better chance in, um, in in society to to get higher paid jobs? Was was that what you're referring to? Well, salaries were pretty much the same in in Romania. So it was uh, communism is known for um, yeah. theoretically <laughs> being yeah. equal. But uh, the point is that um, if you were able to to get a job in technology in coding you'd probably end up in a city uh not in the countryside because people would uh based on their grades they would be assigned a job so you wouldn't just take job interviews during communism you'd be assigned a job and all the jobs that were assigned to people who knew how to code were in cities so you wouldn't have the chance of of ending up in a very remote village with no electricity or no running water, which made jobs in in, in technology appealing to both men and women. And um, it was, I, th- I think, on a society level, g- um, engineers had uh, prestige, and so had doctors and and people who um, were able to graduate uh, and have a university de- degree. Yeah, I mean that, that that makes a lot of sense. So um, I know that uh, that uh, Yaroslav, you worked on uh, a game uh, that I wanted to talk about a little bit, uh, kind of bringing it to uh, to the modern times. A remake of a game from uh, from 1989, I think, a game against regimes. Um, can you talk a bit about uh, about that title? I'm I'm super curious, you know, uh, what that project's about and and bringing like Indiana Jones, a little spoiler here, you know, back from back from that time to uh, I think it's it's working in the uh, in the web browser right now. So maybe you can talk a bit about the project. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, there were some games made in the late 80s in Czechoslovakia that were uh, confronting the regime and criticizing it or mocking it. And um, I think it kind of followed uh, the uh, kind of liberalization in the Soviet Union because there was the perestroika, right? And people were expecting something similar to happen in Czechoslovakia, but it just wasn't really happening. There was not much liberalization happening, uh, I think, either Romania. Um, so... Um, but people were really kind of eager to voice their opinion because they really wanted change. 
Um, and it was reflected in all kinds of kind of human endeavor, but, but in games also. So, you know, in the 80s, in the late 80s, we started getting these games that openly criticized the regime. Um, some of them were kind of more funny and kind of lighthearted, and some of them are, are really kind of uh, angry. And one of those angry games is Indiana Jones Invents Us a Square, uh, which is a game basically inspired by a real-life uh, demonstration against the regime uh, in January 1989. It was a demonstration that went on for, for about a week, and that is why it's called Palach Week. It was a gathering of people who wanted to commemorate the memory of Jan Palach, who was this important figure you know, in uh, Czechoslovak history, like post-1968 history. Um, and they went there and they were brutally beaten up by the police. And this repeated for, you know, four or five consecutive days. And this was one of the first times when there was like an open, violent confrontation between, uh, you know, the, the, the armed, the state, the state and, and its citizens. So people were really angry about it. And uh, a game was made about it, starring, starring Indiana Jones, of all people. Uh, Indiana Jones at that time was, uh, he has appeared in some Czechoslovak games already. Um, so there have been adventure games with Indiana Jones as the main character made by amateurs. So it was, it was like fan fiction, we could say. Uh, Indiana Jones was this you know, uh, iconic kind of Western hero. And in this game, he finds himself during the demonstration um, at the demonstration, and he has to fight off, uh, you know, communist police, and he also gets brutally kind of beaten up himself. And uh, the goal of the game is basically to kind of uh, escape the turmoil of Venceslas Square and and uh, and fly off to the United States. And it's a text adventure game, so it has these like very difficult puzzles. You have to figure out how to kind of uh, fight each individual cop. Um, and I think this is a this is really an amazing uh, example of using games for activism. That's and that's why we decided to make a conversion of this game for the web browser so that it's more accessible. And we also uh, translated it into English so that it's um, so that people who don't right. speak Czech can also play it. Yeah, we can definitely uh, share a link in like the description of this episode that people are interested can can uh, you know check it out just to access it online. I, I found it very amazing um, what uh, the guys have done back then and and you know how you brought it back now because I think uh, from my point of view it couldn't be more relevant these days than ever. So uh, there's there's a lot of reasons for uh, games like this to um, to contribute to the discourse in society these days. So, but what asking you two, what do you think? What what kind of role did games play? back then uh still behind the iron curtain and how can they you know benefit from from those learnings today so what's the impact of games like not only the one that you were bringing to the modern world yara but uh, in general how can games uh from your point of view contribute to what's going on in our society these days open question to both of you whoever, <laughs> <Okay>. whoever wants <laughs> yara and i talked a lot about uh, belarus Mm -hmm. uh, while I wrote the piece for, for Ars Technica, I was a little bit scared with what was happening in, in the U.S. at the same time with, with protests against the police, because um, Indiana Jones is in a way um, reacting to, to police violence in Czechoslovakia. And there are so many parallels and the fact that we're talking about a similar situation almost three decades um, after it happened in, in Czechoslovakia, says um, a lot about um, the ability to change and the ability, the lack of ability to change things on a on a global level. How do you feel? Yeah. How do you feel games can be different from other uh, from another medium like um, you know books or, or films? Um, do from your point of view, games have more power to make people understand the importance of uh, this? Yeah, I think um, they can. I think they can. Uh, they can provide different kinds of experiences. And when you look at the Indiana Jones game, it's um, the fact that you find yourself in that simulated space and that you kind of relive these ex this experience. I think is is crucial, uh, and that you can really kind of try out for yourself that this was a dangerous situation. Um, and games, I think, have this unique capability of, um, you know, putting us in, in the shoes of, you know, these characters, these, you know, 
protesters. I mean, it was Indiana Jones, but in fact, you know, like I, probably the game was written by a protester who was there and yeah. and you were in his shoes kind of uh, experiencing um, all these things. So I think that they have this capacity to um, empath, empath, empathize, I think, uh, with people. With with people in you know difficult situations so not only uh, you know being like a strong superhero character kind of killing all the monsters but also um they they allow us to also kind of simulate these situations when people are actually powerless and they're trying to make right. do with things that are available yeah another good example for me is uh, a game that uh, was released uh, just i think a year or two ago through the darkest of times i don't know if you've you've played it but it um you know it uh, really shows you how um people that were trying to stand up against the the hitler regime how how they had to struggle and uh, uh i think it was very powerful so if, if in case you haven't played it uh, anybody out there listening to this episode uh, you know do yourself a favor and play it it's uh, yeah, i think it's it's really worth it um because you you will get a better feel for what people had to go through at that time so that's the that's the power of games that you can feel in, in those moments so um i wanted to to uh, talk a little bit um also about what happened like uh, after the uh the 80s or late 80s 90s when the iron curtain fell and uh you know how did how did this change in in both romania and czechoslovakia how did uh was there all of a sudden like uh, a lot of new opportunities or did people continue um you know, to to build illegal spectrum clones <laughs> for example uh, how did how did it change you know after that They did. They continued to build Spectrum clones, although they cloned the computer that was obsolete in the West. It didn't yeah. matter. Uh, we, uh, we did what we could with what we had. Um, what's very um, interesting to me is um, another game that was built um, in Romania a few years ago, and it's called Black the Fall. Uh, and it's about the 1989 revolution here, and you should uh, try it. Um, so the game is um, features um, a person, a moderately um, a middle-aged adult who's who works for a nuts and bolts factory, and he knows that his job is useless and it's just there to keep the regime alive. And he dreams of um, getting out of the factory. And as a player, you have to help him. Um, and the game ends with a revolution. Okay. Um, And I talked to the developer and he said that he didn't know what to do after the revolution ends and um, the wall, the Berlin Wall collapses. And um, so he made the character run in a cold and dark place through water, um, suggesting the fact that communism wasn't over in 1989 although we like to believe that it was over it's still with us in certain ways in um, certain attitudes or ways of doing things and with corruption as well so um, it was not like flipping a switch the, the transition continues and um, I'm looking at my country Romania so we had three decades of democracy this is maybe not enough to um, build a strong democratic culture so uh, yeah after 1989 in different ways communism continued and but we're learning uh, year after year i think uh things are are getting better we had huge uh, protests in bucharest a few years ago against um the government who wanted to push legislation that would basically make corruption legal as long as it's below 40,000 uh, uh, euros <laughs> <laughs> so um i guess that people are more awake than ever and this is what matters because um and i'd say that video games uh took played a part in this because uh, the guys who built the Cobra computers were the guys who defended uh, their university during the 1989 revolution. Um, the same guys were there protesting against the government with the bribe uh, legislation thing a few, a few years ago. And the same guys are building uh, face shields for doctors now in uh, the COVID year. So, um, The gamers, I would say, are among the most socially active people in Romania, those of gamers from, from the 1980s, which I think says a lot about them. And by the way, that's not only the case in Romania. I think gamers are among the most active people all over the world in terms of <laughs> voicing their opinion, I feel, at least. Yeah. 
So Yara, was that was that uh, was that the same um, kind of kind of for you? Um, was, it, was it a little different? I, um, I think you know I think it was similar in many ways. So I definitely think that sort of the the, uh, the mindset from the eighties um, I think is still definitely present. Um, um, you know, corruption is still a problem. I, I totally agree. Uh, I think that in a way though. Um, after 1989, one thing like really changed overnight, and that was the uh, uh, private enterprise. And like yeah. all, like many of these people who were working in clubs and they were sharing their knowledge with others, like suddenly started their own companies, and they mm. you know, they didn't really want to share <laughs> anymore. Uh, so a, a lot of a lot of things changed. Of course, some people uh, kept making games for free, but some people started their companies, and many of the most talented programmers went on to work for commercial company commercial companies. So they stopped making games because it's. I mean, let's be honest. It's not the most lucrative programming job you can get or development job. It's much you, you can earn more money working in a bank, you know, as a programmer. So, so they some of them some of them did that. Um, um, yeah, and I think looking at Andrea, uh, you were saying about how um, uh, some of these people are really kind of politically engaged and socially engaged. Um, out of my uh, interviewees, informants. I think many of them still are definitely. Uh, I would, but I, at the same time, I think they're on 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 the on the on, like everywhere uh, on the political spectrum from left to from far left to far right. <laughs> so you know, some of them are now you know kind of far right politicians. Some of them are uh, anarchists almost, I would say, and some of some of them are like liberal activists uh, on city councils and, and and so on. But I would agree that many of them are politically active, and I think one of the reasons is that. When people were making games in the 80s, um, they, I mean, some of them did it just because they liked programming, but many of them did it because it was uh, a means of expression that wasn't censored and right. that was available to them at that time. They really wanted to express themselves um, and they still do. And I'm, I was kind of surprised when I went through this in my head by how many people that were making games in the 80s then became journalists or writers in some other capacity because they just wanted to be heard and, and to have their voice heard and making games was one of the ways of doing that. Yeah, I mean that that's that was very obvious, you know, listening to uh, the two of you and what what happened back in the day, um, that uh, it was a way out in some way for uh, you know people during that time. So, so I want to kind of kind of wrap up this um, uh, our discussion with asking you uh, a question about how do you think the landscape is right now in in your countries? I mean, personally, I work with a large studio in Prague, uh, so I know that you know there's uh, really like amazing game development going on in uh, in, in the Czech Republic these days. Uh, uh, don't have like direct connections with studios in Romania, but maybe from your experience, um, can you just in a few uh, words uh, share uh, with our listeners how the ecosystem for games looks like these days in, in 2020? So FIFA was built um, partially in Romania and Ubisoft is here mm -hmm. and it's one of the, the gaming company uh, the companies that um, everyone knows. Um, Romania does uh, have a, a very strong gaming cu uh, culture and there are thousands of people who are uh, writing code or um, drawing uh, games and being part of the, the whole process. Um, and there are also some smaller studios where people build games almost by themselves or within a small team, which is somehow similar to what happened um, in the uh, 80s. And it's this idea of the industrialization of gaming where uh, you lose ownership and um, as, as a developer might be um, a little bit troubling for some of the people who started writing uh, games uh, a long time ago. But yeah, I think I think the landscape is really diverse and um, a lot of people try to, to match what the market uh, wants with uh, what they want. And I guess uh, that there are various uh, sweet spots in which um, each person could um, sit. Is the game development in Romania mostly um, based in, in Bucharest or is other uh, other hotspots in the country where uh, developers are located? Yeah, it's mostly based in Bucharest. Okay. How about uh, Czech Republic from your point of view? I mean, like I said, I, I know a bit about it, but, uh, but I'm curious yeah. how you see that um, right there. Yeah, sure. I think it's it's a very active uh, scene, and it's uh, it's had um, several successes lately. Uh, you know, Beat Saber is yeah. uh, is being made in Prague, and it's that that's been a runaway success with the VR version and everything. Um, 
the mafia series started in uh, in the Czech Republic like already in the 2000s, and that's been going on. Um, uh, there's also, I mean, speaking of smaller studios, uh, there's this studio called um, Amanita Design, who do games like Samorost and and, and, Huchel and, um, and and these kind of point-and-click adventure games with really unique aesthetic, uh, which is inspired by, you know, Czech animation from the you know, 60s and 70s. And I think yeah. that that's one of the ways of really kind of making it big internationally while still being a small studio. And having like a very distinct artistic voice uh, because nobody really makes games like Amanita Design do. So they, they, they were also the ones uh, doing uh, Machinarium, right? Mach yeah, yeah, Machinarium. Machinarium. Yeah, yeah. They, it's a the, the cool thing is I uh, the the little robot from that game, uh, Yosef, I think is his name. Uh, uh, I actually, <laughs> it's a little anecdote here. I took him. I have a little um, uh, plush toy from from Yosef and Berta, his girlfriend, and I took him around the world on trips for a couple of years. And I collected. I even have a Facebook page for the for these two guys. I haven't updated it in the last couple of years, but I, uh, I I you know sent the link to that page where we took pictures, like in I don't know the United States and the UK, wherever with with those things. I send them to Amanita Design and say. Hey, Hey, listen, you know, see where your little uh, little buddy actually uh, saw the world, and they 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 loved it. So my daughter really liked it a lot, and, and myself too. So uh, it's it's cool how um, I think they created their own identity um, uh, with the games they make. Reminds me that we need to invite them at some point to uh, yeah. our our Twitch show or even here to a podcast uh, session to talk about the games. Well, um, Yaro and uh, and Andrada, I want to thank you so much for uh, taking the time today to uh, let us look behind the Iron Curtain a little bit on what happened in, in Romania and Czechoslovakia back then. It was super interesting for me uh, to learn a bit about it. We will um, definitely share some of the um, links to, to articles and, and the game we talk about as part of this um, of the podcast description. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure that there's a lot of our listeners that are also going to be as excited as I am about you know learning about a time that people probably didn't um, think about or don't think about too much these days uh, when they think about video games but uh, it is very cool uh, that you do this work and uh, we're able to share some of the insights with us today so i really want to thank you again it was a great pleasure thanks so much it was fun thanks so much yeah thank, thank you for having us and um i'd like to say to our listeners that um yaro's book is exquisite his research is stellar and uh <laughs> they should definitely read it hacking the um uh, Gaming the Iron Curtain, right? Gaming the Iron Curtain, right. Yeah, we can we can put a link there. Uh, uh, definitely, I, I think it's a really great read for uh, our listeners. Thank you very much uh, and hope we can, uh, you know, see how the uh, ecosystem is evolving in, in both your countries uh, maybe in, in, in a year or two and can have a follow-up to this. It would be great. Thank All right. you. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to an episode of DevCom Podcast. More exclusive content at patreon.com slash devcom underscore C-O-N-F. Produced by Sven Fossi. Executive producer, Stefan Reichart. Music by weloveindies.com. Supported by Bayer Dynamic. High quality headphones, microphones, and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers. Made in Germany. 